As we come to Matthew chapter 4, what we have here is a summary of the message that Jesus preached during his earthly ministry. It was the message of the prophets before him. It was the message of his apostles after he ascended into heaven. And it is the message that is to be proclaimed in every church until the day that Christ returns. It is God's call to the world. And it is God's call to us. And it's verse 17, Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we profess to be Christians. We profess to be those committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here is not just one command of Christ among many. The command to repent is the chief command of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is any command of Christ that we must be earnest and careful to obey as His disciples, it is this one. We cannot say that we are followers of Christ if we are not following Him in the command that is given here as the summary of His entire message. Namely, that we repent. But what does it mean to repent? We, we cannot obey if we do not know what the word means. And how many there have been who have sat in a worship service and were brought to tears over their sins and assumed that those te- tears over their sins was repentance. And yet it wasn't. Or how many there have been who went to a confessional and admitted their sins to a priest and thought that was repentance. And it wasn't. And how many there have been who have put away certain sins in their lives, replacing them with others, thinking that they had truly repented. Mount Hermon, we need to get this right. What does it mean to truly repent? And God has given us much help in the Bible. And as we've seen in the 1600s, a group of godly men, Baptists in England, using the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration and other documents, they put together the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And in that document, they do a fantastic job of summarizing the Bible's teaching on true repentance. And so in seeking to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 4.17, we've been using this statement as a guide for us. And I want to read it to us again. It's there in your outline. Here's what the confession says. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. So what have we seen already? We've already seen that repentance is a gospel grace. Repentance is a gift from God that brings us to salvation 
And it's only because of the Savior's death on the cross that repentance is saving at all. We've seen that true repentance includes seeing our own sin, acknowledging our own sin, owning our sin. We've seen that true repentance includes sensing the vileness of our sin so that our hearts are repulsed by what we've done. We've seen that true repentance includes humbling ourselves before God, even abhorring ourselves for being so rebellious and so wicked. And now tonight we pick up a further aspect of true repentance. It's our fifth point, and here it is. True repentance includes godly sorrow. True repentance includes godly sorrow. Psalm 38, verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. When we look to the Bible for examples of true repentance, we find that the godly were grieved in their hearts because of their sin. In fact, the Bible uses the language of being heartbroken. In our culture, when we talk about a broken heart, we usually think about someone who's been let down by someone they loved. Maybe their loved one has died, and we say, oh, their heart is broken. Or maybe someone that they cared for has broken up with them or divorced them, and and we say, oh, they have broken their hearts. But in the Bible, we find people whose hearts are broken because of their own sinfulness. Think about David in Psalm 51. Here he is after his terrible sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband. And he says that his bones have been broken. And David doesn't mean literally that his his bones have been physically broken. No, he is so overcome with sorrow for his own sin that it feels to him as if all his bones have been broken. He prays and asks for God to restore to him the joy of his salvation because his joy has been overcome by sorrow for the terrible sin he committed. In Psalm 51, 16 and 17, David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. David recognizes that true repentance does not first and foremost consist in outward actions. Slaying a thousand bulls at the altar does not make for true repentance. Fasting during Lent time does not make for true repentance. True repentance is a matter of the heart. It isn't an animal that must be slain. It's our own heart that must be slain. It's our own heart that must be broken. And when we are brokenhearted over our sin, this, David says, God will not despise. He ends the psalm by saying that God will delight in burnt offerings and God will delight in sacrifices when they come from a contrite and a broken heart. In the Bible, we see people express how broken hearted they are over their sin in many ways. 
Jeremiah 31, 19, For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. It's an interesting way of expressing grief. The tribe of Ephraim is pictured here as a man striking his thigh out of sorrow for his sin. Luke 18, verse 13, The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man was so brokenhearted over his sin, he wouldn't even look up. And we're told that he beat his own breast. Isaiah twenty-two twelve. In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. Shaving one's head and putting on sackcloth were expressions of sorrow for sin. This was to put oneself very low, like a slave. It was a symbol of submission to God, a, a way of saying, I am at, completely at the disposal of God. Should He judge me, He's right to do so, because I see my sin and I'm broken over it. God, do with me what you will. Job 42, 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Sitting down in dust and ashes was a way of outwardly expressing the inward sorrow that a person felt for their sins. Ezra 9, verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and my beard, and sat appalled. Not only does Ezra pull out the hair of his head, and pull out the hair of his beard, but he he rends his garments. He tears his clothes as a sign of being inwardly broken and torn. And what's particularly interesting about Ezra's case is he wasn't even grieving about his own sin. He was grieving over the sins of the nation. And it caused him such sorrow. So in the Bible, we see heartbrokenness expressed in sacrifices and burnt offerings, in striking one's thigh, in beating one's chest, putting on sackcloth, pulling out one's hair and beard, sitting in dust and ashes, rending one's garments. But Mount Hermon, none of those things mean a thing if they are not expressing the sincere brokenness of the heart. Joel 2, 12 and 13, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Why did God say through Joel, rend your heart, not your garments? It's because what God cares about is this. Is there godly sorrow for sin in your heart? Have you come to be like Him, grieving over wickedness and evil? Mount Hermon, let us examine ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God. Have we ever known what it is to grieve over sin so much that we would do any of these things that the Scriptures have just spoken about? Have we ever known what it is 
to be so stricken by our own sin that we would rend our own garments or put ourselves in dust and ashes. I am not telling you to do those things. It isn't the outward acts that are important. But has your heart ever been broken over sin to that kind of degree? Why should we desire such godly sorrow for sin? Right? Sorrow is not fun. We live in a day of fun. Everything's supposed to be fun. Why should we desire to experience godly sorrow? Because God does not despise a person who knows such sorrow. God always draws near to the person of godly sorrow. God comes and He strengthens and He encourages and He blesses the soul that knows this holy grief. God loves to bless that which is good and a holy mourning for sin is good. And therefore God says to the sinner who grieves over his sin, your weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Right before that statement in Psalm 30, we read this one. God's anger is for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. In other words, those who know grief now will know joy for eternity. Those who live in sinful joy now will know grieving over their sin for eternity. But those who grieve now Will know joy for eternity. This is why Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this raises the question of how we can know whether or not we're experiencing true godly sorrow. And so let me ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And the context of the chapter is this. Paul had written a letter of correction to this church in Corinth. You know this letter is 1 Corinthians. And one of the major issues in the church in Corinth was that there was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. He was having an ongoing immoral relationship with his mother-in-law. And Paul's response to this was one of sheer abhorrence. He said in 1 Corinthians that that kind of behavior wasn't even tolerated among non-Christians. And he could not believe that the Corinthian Christians were tolerating that sin in their church. The primary sin in the church of Corinth was the sin of pride. And Paul is shocked that this church can have such pride, can be so full of themselves when such grievous sin is happening unchecked in their midst. He said in 1 Corinthians, very boldly, he said, You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? When a church has this kind of sin happening in her midst, Paul says, shouldn't she be full of grief and humility? Not pride and boastfulness. And then Paul told the Corinthians in no uncertain terms to remove that man from among them. They were to practice church discipline, hopefully leading to that man repenting of his sin. And by the grace of God, the Corinthian church 
truly was stung by Paul's letter. And they began to truly mourn over their sin as a church. And they did practice church discipline. And while it does not always work out this way, in this case, this fella truly repented. And he turned back to Christ. This was a story with with a happy ending. And so now in this second letter to the Corinthians, Paul is speaking about this. And he begins in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8. Look at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. In other words, Paul says, I'm not rejoicing that my last letter made you sad. I am not rejoicing that my last letter put you into a state of grief, but I am thankful and I am happy that you did grieve because through your grief came true repentance. It was their genuine sorrow over their sin that brought this church to true repentance. And then in verses 10 and 11, Paul says this, note verses 10 and 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Isn't that what we want? A repentance that leads to salvation without regret? Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing. What zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Mount Hermon, do you see how amazingly helpful those two verses in our Bible are? Here Paul gives us the marks of true godly sorrow for sin. If we want to know what God-given genuine mourning for sin looks like. Paul gives us a description right here. This is a passage for testing ourselves. We can put our own lives up to verse 11 and see if you or I have known what it is to experience true godly grief that leads to repentance. So what do we see here? We see that there are two kinds of grief being contrasted. There is worldly grief and there is godly grief. Uh, Worldly grief is a kind of grief that can come from this world. That is, it can be produced in and of ourselves. This is not a God-given sorrow for sin. This is a man-produced sorrow for sin. And where does this grief take us? It takes us to death, Paul says. Worldly grief does our souls no good at all. In fact, this false sorrow that does not lead to true repentance leads to greater condemnation. This worldly sorrow is shallow and hypocritical and it makes us all the more guilty before God. Worldly grief is dangerous and it is evil. Godly grief is different. Godly grief is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit 
as we ourselves afflict our hearts with sight of our own sin. And this kind of grief leads to true repentance and true salvation. So what we're going to do tonight for the rest of our time is just note some of these marks of godly grief. And I pray that you will recognize these and that you will be able to say, I've, I've known these at seasons of my life. Let's look at each one briefly. Number one, godly grief is marked by an earnestness for righteousness. An earnestness for righteousness. Paul says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced for you. Before his letter, the church was unconcerned about the sin in her midst, but no longer. Their grieving has produced in them a desire to make things right. Excuse me. Before, they were passionate about themselves. Who's the greatest in our church? Now they've become passionate about honoring Christ and being faithful. In other words, the first mark of godly grief is that it cannot stand for sin to remain unchecked. The first mark of godly grief is a desire for sin to be put away. Sin must be dealt with, and it must be dealt with as soon as possible. The grieving heart does not want sin living contentedly in its own soul. The godly godly heart, the heart that is grieving over sin, wants sin to be thrown away like a putrid rag. Get away from me, sin. As the priests were so zealous for maintaining the purity of the temple, so the Christian is to be zealous about maintaining the purity of his or her life. Godly grief and being content with your sin cannot go together. Earnestness for righteousness is the first mark of godly grief. Number two, godly grief is marked by an eagerness for vindication. An eagerness for vindication. So Paul speaks here of their eagerness to clear themselves. And the word he uses in the Greek is the word apologia from which we get our word apologetics or apology. And the idea is that of giving a defense or or making a case. And here, the church has become passionate about making a case for their holiness. They are passionate that other churches know that they are no longer the twisted, corrupt church that they used to be. They are striving to clear their name. They are striving to be known as faithful. John MacArthur says, The Corinthians had a strong desire to clear their name, to remove the stigma of their sin, to rid themselves of their guilt, and to prove themselves trustworthy. Therefore, they made sure that all who had known of their sin now know of their repentance. Godly grief is marked by a desire not only to fling away all sin from you like a putrid, dirty diaper, but it's also marked by a desire to be pure and to be clean and to be blameless. Number three, godly grief is marked by indignation. Indignation. Godly grief is marked by indignation or another way of saying that, righteous anger. Righteous anger. The word Paul uses here is a word that refers to pain inflicted on oneself. 
In other words, this church was angry at the sin that they had allowed to be in their midst. And they were angry at themselves for allowing it. Have you ever done something and then later looked back and were deeply angry with yourself for having done it? You ever been there? Well, this was the experience of the church in Corinth. And when we see our sin for what it really is, contrasted with the awesomeness, the holiness, the goodness, the purity and majesty of God, how can we not be angry with ourselves for ever having sinned against Him? When we see the consequences of our sins, when we see how much harm our sin does to God's name, to our soul, to the people we love, to our witness in this world, How can we not have a righteous anger at ourselves? Charles Hodge rightly says that this is one of the most marked experiences of every sincere penitent. Here's a mark of true repentance, Hodge says. That you know what it is to have a righteous anger against your sin. You will never work to kill sin in your life until you see it as your hated enemy. You will never work to kill sin in your life until you have seen your sin as an object of your righteous anger. Number four. Number four. Paul says that godly grief is marked by the fear of God. Godly grief is marked by the fear of God. You see that in verse 11. And the fear that Paul speaks of must be the fear of God, because the fear of man would be wicked and would not be a part of genuine repentance. The idea here is that when a sinner truly sees his or her sin and grieves, it ought to be with a sense of reverential awe and trembling before God. What does the Christian fear when he is grieving over his sin? Well, if that person has been continuing to walk in sin for some time, if that professing Christian has been walking in sin without fighting it, without turning from it, then that person has good reason to fear the wrath of God. If sin is not dealt with, but is allowed to entangle us unchecked, it will harden our hearts and it will cause us to fall away from the living God and we will go to hell. That's Hebrews chapter 3. doesn't mean that you lost your salvation. Hebrews 3 makes it clear. It means you never had your salvation that you thought you had. Anytime a professing Christian begins to see that he's been living in sin happily, without fighting it, content in his sin, he ought to fear the wrath of God. But for the genuine Christian, the Christian who really is fighting sin, fighting tooth and claw, and yet again and again you're still losing the battle, What are you to fear? Well, the true Christian ought not to fear the wrath of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we ought to have a healthy fear of the discipline of our Father. Our Father will never throw us off. Our Father will never condemn us. He will never forsake us. He will never lessen His love for us, even to one degree. But as a good Father, because He loves us, when He sees us in sin, He will discipline us. And that discipline can be most unpleasant. And it's worth being feared. 
Remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul had told this church that one of the reasons people in that church were getting sick and one of the reasons that God had brought some of those people on home to heaven and killed them earlier than they would have expected to die was because of sin. During the Lord's Supper, the people were mistreating one another and God saw that if He did not take some of these people's lives then, they would fall away from Him. God keeps His people saved. But He keeps His people saved even when it means causing them to get sick or to die in order to keep them saved. The discipline of God can be so severe that it can come in the form of an illness, of an injury, a heart attack, a stroke. So that when you sin, there is good reason to fear the discipline of your Father. It will always be loving discipline. It will always be disciplined for your good. But that doesn't change the fact that discipline hurts when it's corrective discipline. And we shouldn't want it. To put it another way, we need not fear the consequences of our sins after death. The consequences of our sins will not follow us to heaven. But we should fear the consequences of our sins in this life. I can't help but think of the Mayflower and its voyage to New England. And it was carrying the pilgrims. And William Bradford, he's on the boat. And he tells us that one of the ship's crew, some of you may remember this from our presentation on the pilgrims, there was one man on that ship's crew that was constantly insulting and berating the pilgrims as they would get seasick. And they would be in just an awful condition as they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, this crew member would just get annoyed with them. He would get frustrated because they were seasick all the time, and he would curse at them. And he would tell them that he was looking forward to throwing their dead bodies over the side of the boat long before they ever reached the American coast. This man was just truly, uh, he wouldn't even listen to the reproofs of others. He continued with this kind of attitude. And then in the providence of God, this crew member was the first person on the boat to get truly sick. And his was the first body that was thrown overboard from the Mayflower. God struck this man down because of his sin. And Bradford, in his book on Plymouth Plantation, he praises God, saying that through this act of discipline, the people of the ship learned an important lesson, and they began to treat each other better than perhaps they otherwise would have. I don't know whether that crewman was a Christian or not, but if he was, while his sins were forgiven in Jesus Christ, that was still an act of discipline that he had to bear. And so let us learn that godly grief will always have an element of fear in it. Fear of arousing our Father's righteous displeasure so that He must discipline us. I will say that I think that this is a theme that is being largely forgotten in our modern day. The theme of the discipline of our Father. Joel Osteen doesn't preach much on God's discipline, does he? And I think it's something we need to recover. Number five. Godly grief is marked by a longing for holiness. Godly grief is marked by a longing for holiness. So they're eager to vindicate themselves. They're angry that they allowed this sin in their midst. They're in the fear of God's discipline. And now the Corinthians are deeply longing for holiness. They were desiring that God would make them a pure and a holy church. And in the same way, if we are experiencing genuine grief over our sin, 
we will find ourselves on our knees crying out to God for purity. We will find ourselves asking God that He will make us more like our Savior and that He will rid us of every vice that is still dwelling in our hearts. The grieving Christian knows what it is to want holiness more than silver or gold. The Christian who has experienced godly grief has known what it is to cry out to God and say, God, take everything else away from me if you must, but make me pure. The repenting Christian knows what it is to long for holiness more than fame or power or any earthly pleasure. The repenting Christian would exchange all the riches of this world in order to be free from indwelling sin and in order to be pure in word and deed. And so I ask you, is that you? Does that mark your life? Does that sound like your heart? Number six, godly grief is marked by a zeal for holiness. A zeal for holiness. And so this is the fruit of the longing for holiness, the desire for holiness, right? There's a zeal. When when we long for holiness, we, we want it, we pray for it, we beseech God to give it to us. But then we get off our knees and we start passionately working to achieve it. The truly repentant Christian becomes zealous for good works. We become zealous to do what is right. We become zealous to squelch every temptation the moment it rears its head. And so there's this longing for holiness, but it doesn't just stay in the heart. It begins to show itself in the choices that we make. And clearly that was true of the church in Corinth. Well, finally, number seven. Godly grief is marked by a willingness to endure punishment for your sin. Godly grief is marked by a willingness to endure punishment for your sin. Paul is speaking here about how this church had been willing to undergo the hard work of church discipline. And they had not only dealt with this sinning man, but they had dealt with their own prideful hearts. The truly repentant person knows that he is guilty before God and he is willing to endure whatever earthly consequences God may be pleased to send. The Christian is not eager to accept the punishment, right? No child is ever eager to be spanked, right? So we're we're not eager for the punishment. It isn't fun, but he is willing to endure it. And he submits patiently to God's discipline. Um, I think here about Chuck Colson. Remember Chuck Colson? Why did Chuck Colson go to prison? Uh, Remember, he was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. Uh, Time magazine called him a a dirty trickster. He was involved in both the Ellsberg break-in and the Watergate scandal. He was indicted by Congress. And his lawyers urged him to plead the Fifth Amendment. And they said, if you plead the Fifth Amendment, you might be able to avoid jail time. But while going through this process... God used C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, to bring Chuck Colson to Christ. And for the first time, Chuck Colson came face to face with his sin and all the terrible things that he had done. And rather than pleading the fifth against the advice of all his lawyers, he chose to say, I am guilty. And to confess all of his sins before the Congress and to say, do with me 
what you will. I deserve it. He refused to play self-defense any longer, and he accepted the penalty for his crimes. This is a mark of someone who is experiencing true godly sorrow. They're willing to own up and experience the punishment that they know that they are due in this life. Is this something you have known? Is this something that has marked your life? As we close, I do want to remind you as a church that we are looking at one aspect of the Christian life. Godly sorrow. You are not to live in godly sorrow alone. Godly sorrow should mark your life, but it should not be the only characteristic of your life. Your godly sorrow must be held together with great joy in your Savior Jesus Christ. We are great sinners, and we are to grieve over our sin, and we are to long for holiness. But even as we see our sin, we are to rejoice in the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so our lives are not to be lives of sorrow alone. They are to be lives of sorrow over sin, but great rejoicing in our Savior. We are great sinners, but we have an even greater Savior. Amen? Amen.